We are going to look this evening at Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to read down that well-known section of this chapter, verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. And here, the Apostle Paul writing to these believers in Philippi from prison, which he makes very clear in the opening chapter, now says to them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your, this is a difficult Greek word to translate. It could be gentleness or reasonableness or sort of the idea of self-emptying be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mentioned to you not that long ago that Jonathan Edwards was driven out of his pulpit and his pastoral ministry in Northampton for one pastoral mistake that he made. Um, He ministered to 900 people. He was the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And yet his congregation drove him out because of one error, and if you look at Edward's farewell sermon, what is remarkable is that in that final sermon that he preaches to a congregation that is rejected to him, he focuses on the Apostle Paul in both Philippians and elsewhere saying, essentially to the people of God, you are our crown and joy and rejoicing in the day of Christ. You are our crown and joy and rejoicing in the day of Christ. Now, when we look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, it's remarkable um, how full of joy the Apostle was. He is in chains for the better part of his ministry, and yet those chains don't steal him from joy. Um, They don't steal joy from him. They don't steal thanksgiving from him. In fact, in every letter, and no less in this letter, notice how The apostle opens this letter as he is in chains. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, with joy. I was struck as I was preparing for this this evening by that that one circumstance in which Paul and Silas are arrested and put in prison for um, challenging the the crazy slave girl. And when they're in prison, in Acts 16, Luke tells us that about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns, and God intervened in delivering them. What, What enables someone to be in circumstances like the Apostle Paul, and yet to be so full of joy and so full of thanksgiving? You know, it's interesting when Paul is writing this letter and he comes to these final exhortations, he has set out what a gospel hope is. He has said in chapter 3 that um, he counts everything lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. He sets before uh, the readers here and before us that we are all to be pressing on to lay hold of Christ and to attain to the resurrection. And yet no sooner has he said that ought to be the ultimate goal of all true believers that at the beginning of this chapter, he has to turn around and he has to correct two bickering women in the church. I entreat Euodia, verse 2, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
And then right after saying that, it is as if Paul focuses on the epicenter of what ought to be predominant in the life of any Christian fellowship. And he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. I want us to focus tonight just very briefly as we prepare to come before the Lord in prayer how our God commands us to rejoice and how he commands us to be thankful. He commands us to rejoice and he commands us to be thankful. Well, Paul's already introduced the theme of joy throughout this letter. We have seen there in those opening verses that he thanked God with joy, praying for them always for their partnership in the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he speaks about the joy and the rejoicing that he has. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then having set that up in chapter 3, verse 1, he picks up on it now in chapter 4, verse 4. And, you know, we ought to think it strange that God commands his people to rejoice. What kind of God do we have? that he doesn't just command you to serve and to do and to, to work and to pour yourself out and sacrifice. He commands you to rejoice. And he doesn't just do it once, he does it twice. Notice that Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I was meditating on this and thinking about how Paul is saying this while he is a prisoner in chains. Paul is not saying that we are to rejoice when things are going very well. It's easy in the Christian life. It's easy in gospel ministry to rejoice when things are going well. And it's very difficult to rejoice when our circumstances seem against us and the blessings don't seem to abound. And yet Paul here is in chains. Listen to this. Spurgeon says, Paul, a sufferer to the utmost extent for Christ's sake, now as an ambassador in bond, shut up in a dungeon, says, rejoice. Paul was a greatly tried man, but he was a blessedly happy man. There is not one of us, but would gladly change conditions with Paul if that were possible, now that we see that the whole of his life written out, looking across all ages, across all the scenes of the troubles he encountered, he can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You know, I was thinking about this in preparation for tonight, and I thought how little our prayers are often um, covered with joy. Um, You know, Paul has every reason not to be joyful. And yet he has every reason to be joyful. He knows what he has in Christ. He knows where he's going. He knows that God is using him, even in his sufferings. He knows that the Lord is his blessedness and his reward. He knows that he is going to be with the people he's ministering to for all eternity. This is how Edwards could say to a congregation that have rejected him, you are my crown and joy and rejoicing in the day of Christ Jesus. Um, You know, it's interesting, uh, D.A. Carson notes that the controlling issue is not the style of rejoicing, but the ground of rejoicing. Notice what Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Where does 
Where does real, lasting joy come from? It comes from knowing God. It comes from finding our delight in him. It comes from knowing that in him, he is everything to us. You know, uh, Habakkuk, and I don't know the last time you read anything out of Habakkuk, but Habakkuk was a prophet who lamented the state and the condition of the church. It was full of wickedness. It was full of corruption. He had every reason to, to grieve and to mourn. He didn't understand why injustices were allowed to prevail. And at the very end of the book of Habakkuk, listen to this, at the very end, Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even if nothing is there, even if no external circumstances, your marriage, your family dynamics, your work, your interactions with your boss, even if there's no circumstantial prosperity, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Remember, Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, You know, I really do think that Paul doubles this command in verse 4 because he knows that it's something that is very slowly gotten by us. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It is in Christ. It is in the redemption that we have in Christ. It is... It is in all the blessings. D.A. Carson says this, Surely all redeemed men and women will want to rejoice in the Lord. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous because another has borne our guilt. We have received the gift of the Spirit. We are children of the living God. Our threescore and ten years may be fraught with difficulty, but eternity waits us secured by the Son of God. Carson says we shall see Christ face to face, and spend an eternity in the purest worship and in consummate holiness. There are plenty of reasons why we should rejoice. And notice that Paul doesn't just tell us the ground of this command, that we are to rejoice in the Lord. He tells us when we are to rejoice and for how long we are to rejoice. Notice this, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Um... You know, if we really had hearts full of the joy of the Lord, we would never complain. We would never grumble. We would never backbite. We would never talk evil about others because we would have every reason to be thankful and joyful. Um, We need so much more joy. And here's the thing. The Lord has given us every reason to be joyful. Christ has redeemed us. That is reason enough. Your sins are forgiven. You're bound for glory. No matter what lot God uh, lays bare for us, no matter what lot he measures out to us, we have every reason to be joyful in the Lord. And then secondly, I want us to consider the command to pray with thanksgiving because Paul is always coupling joy and thanksgiving. Notice that he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Um, We often become very anxious about all kinds of things. 
We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to work out in this situation or that situation. And we start to let our circumstances dictate the postures of our heart. And when we do, we start to want to take things into our own hands and control our circumstances. And when we do and we're frustrated in trying to control our circumstances, we become anxious. And that anxiety leads to depression. And it mounts up, and then we start to live in worry and anxiety constantly, letting that consume us and take control of our minds and hearts. And so Paul addresses that issue. He understands that we are a people who are very easily controlled by our circumstances. And so he says, do not be anxious about anything. There is literally not one thing no trial, no circumstance, no hardship, no persecution, no opposition, no want or need that should in any way whatsoever merit us living in anxiety. Um, Remember how Jesus dispels anxiety. He says, look at the flowers. They neither toil nor spin, yet they are clothed more gloriously than Solomon. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your father feeds them. Why are you anxious about tomorrow? Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. And yet, notice Paul's solution is not just to look at the providence of God and the care of God and the ways God tends to bountifully provide when we're not in control, providing for us in our circumstances. Notice that Paul says the solution to sinful anxiety is in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, I think when Paul says this, he is not saying we should only be thankful when God gives us what we want. He is not saying we should be thankful when God answers prayers the way we want him to. Now, there are plenty of times, there's plenty of reasons for us to give God thanks for answering prayers favorably. And yet Paul is saying in every situation, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I believe when we obey God's command to rejoice in the Lord always, and we go to God bringing our supplications to him with thanksgiving, the result is what Paul says. He says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I often think about uh, William Cooper, the friend of John Newton and the Great Depression that he struggled with, the melancholy, the suicidal thoughts, the dark nights of the soul that he had. And yet in the midst of all of those trials, Cooper would write this, Ye fearful saints, Fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, how can Richard, I'm sorry, how can William 
Cooper and Richard Cooper. How can all the Coopers, how can all the Coopers give God thanks in the midst of trials and hardships and difficulties because William Cooper understood that God has his purposes and even in trying situations, we can go to him with joy and with thanksgiving, making our requests known to him, knowing that behind a frowning providence is God's smiling face. I want to encourage us with that tonight, just very briefly as we come to pray, more of a homily for us, and that as we come to the Lord tonight, I want us in a special way to go to God with hearts that are full of joy for what he's done for us in Christ, and I want us to go to him with thanksgiving in all of our prayers and supplication. I want us to focus in a special way. As you as you join together and call on the Lord tonight, um, that all of our prayers would have that coupling of those two, two great pillars of joy, always, and thanksgiving in all circumstances.